here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Look, I know I shouldn't get into it, but being the Human Torch seems more cursed than blessing. Oh, totally. Like, I don't know why anyone thinks, oh, this is fine. No, he's on fire. Even if it doesn't hurt him, he is still destroying everything he comes into contact with. Johnny's a narcissist. <laughs> if I can't have it, no one can. I'm going to burn this world. You know how many times he's <laughs> flamed on while inside of a woman? Oh, Reed has had to throw so many women into his particle accelerator. <laughs> No, that just sounds like a euphemism. God, that, that that's like the darkest issue of Fantastic Four ever. Just Johnny walking in with a charred corpse of a prostitute saying, Reed, can you science this one away? <laughs> Reed, Reed, fix her. Use one of your machines to stretch a soul into her. And then Ben argues that Reed can save one of Johnny's prostitutes and or hide the body, but he can't cure the thing. <laughs> What a tragic development this is. Meanwhile, Doom is plotting. <laughs> it turns out that girl was a Doom bot the entire time. Johnny's dick has a tracker in it. <laughs> All in 22 pages. Well, I don't know, Johnny, if the papers find out about this. The Fantastic Four may be evicted from the Baxter building again. Because this is, it's just a build-up to that story. <laughs> <laughs> Man, the Roy Thomas issues are weird. <laughs> All right, we got we got the Human Torch out of our system. Start the show. Never, but we can continue. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I actually, sadly enough, might need to get rid of the clicker. Uh, it was poorly made and it's getting stuck when I click it now. <laughs> <laughs> Broken that thing already, Cody. <laughs> you know, it was three bucks. Get what you pay for. I should have bought like a fancy titanium clicker, but instead, you fucking overclicked your clicker. I did. I did. We have to have a fucking funeral fucking... for this thing. I was fucking around and clicking it too much, and it, it keeps it keeps getting stuck. You have you can unstick it. It's just you know when you need successive quick clicks, you don't want to have to deal with that. Like two years from now, we're gonna be looking back. Oh, remember the wild and crazy summer where Box Office Bulb had a clicker? Oh, uh, the clicker. He's he's like he's our secret producer. This is. The extra member of our band that pulls the sound together. That's the stage manager coming out and saying, Five minutes. Five minutes till box office pulp. Uh, fun fact I never paid attention to this before, which is weird because it's in big letters, but the clicker actually has a name printed on it. It's C L I K dash capital R. Click R. Oh, it's like an AI. <sighs> it had to get dumber. <laughs> it had to get dumber. It's a robot name now. It has a robot name. Officially, it's a robot. Okay. And I have to kill it now. It's very sad. One quick tangent. Years ago, we had like one of those New Year's dolls. It, it looked like a, a fuzzy, smiley face guy. And if he pushed his hand, he'd count down from 10 and then shout, Happy New Year. But we had this thing for like 10 years and the batteries finally died. But you wouldn't know or be able to replace them because it's like a furry thing. You'd have to rip them apart to replace the battery. So we just put them out each year hit the button, and then we'd see how he had decorated from the last year. So by the end, it was just, five, four, three, two, one. I've never heard an animatronic sound like it had to die more than that thing. <laughs> it was the saddest version of Child's Play, I'll say that much. Anyways, hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard Box Office Pulp. Your one-stop podcast for movies, Madness, Moxie, and tonight, A Murder on the Orient Express. Murder most foul? That was my mystery voice. Anyways, I'm your host, Cody, and joining in tonight's investigation is our own exquisite corpse, the body of Jamie. Say nothing, Jamie, or you break the rule. Nice work. And next to the deceased is a man with blood on his hands and no alibi. Say hello to Mike. Uh, it's up to you to find the real murderer, gumshoes. <laughs> it's too obvious with this knife it looks like I did it so that would be movie over and we're 20 minutes in can't happen this is a test and you <laughs> failed eh, well happens and then I stabbed the children that are part of this uh, children's show that we're putting on what? in my imagination now why, why are you becoming a... Zaz I, 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 
The show started very suddenly, okay? I don't like your version of the show must go on means you have to stab children to fill time. Concerning. They have to learn. See, now I just feel like I should have gone with my original intro where I was just going to do my really bad Hercule Poirot impression. And at least we would have zero stories about children being stabbed. You're selling us tremendously short, Cody. (laughs) I mean, it's possible we could have gotten there. Oh, we are Box Office Pulp, and we are probably the worst movie podcast that's ever lived. Thanks for tuning in, folks. But enough about us. Let's talk about people being murdered on trains. I didn't write the rest of the episode. I just really like that one line, so we're just going to cut it down there. Actually, before we even get into the movie, I, I had to like put my English degree to work and do some brief research on the history of the mystery. And it, it just struck me because mysteries are really a young genre. You know, we, we've had dramas from Shakespeare for hundreds of years, but think about mysteries. Like, when do they really get started? When we start developing, developing them? I mean, the granddaddy of detective stories is essentially Edgar Allan Poe. So we've got the murders in the Rue Morgue. That's not that long ago. This is a pretty young genre. And it's, it's weird to think that the murder on the Orient Express, the version we got in 2017, I should specify which version we're talking about. So anyone who's a big fan of the classic version, I'm, I'm sorry, we will be saying very little about that film today. We're not doing the TV movie starring Alfred Molina? We are not. Jamie turns around and throws away her notes. <laughs> what a pull that would have been, though. We just, yeah, why not? There's probably a lot of fans out there of that version. But anyways, it's, it's just fascinating to me because we have this version from 2017 that's remaking the older versions. It's going back to the source material. And all of that makes it seem like it's so old that we have to reboot this thing. But in general, these are all still fairly young stories. I mean, it's even younger than the Sherlock Holmes stuff. And that's not really all that old either. So we're reinventing something and trying to modernize it, but it's not really that old. Basically, this gave me an excuse to just do a lot of rabbit hole clicking through Wikipedia links. Uh, fun fact, the printing press was made in 1440. Forgot about that fact until the other day. You can just keep that little fun fact for yourself. You're welcome, folks at home. <laughs> That's right. I saved you, Google. Just think, in the years before the invention of the printing press, people just had to write down stories with entrails. <laughs> that is the only way. That's the only reason we had the Crusades. No one ever liked rereading a story. Also, libraries were terrible. I really like the there, there was... image of just a library filled with guts just stuck on walls. Just guts and rocks to hold them down. <laughs> and that's where the first butcher shop came from. Which is what we're really here to talk about. We don't need to talk about mysteries. We're here to talk about meat. But no, uh, so Agatha Christie is one of those people that you, you will always walk into a Barnes & Noble and see a giant stack of her complete collections. But I've read probably two of her stories in my life. And going back to just look at her production, holy shit. Uh, so a quick recap of what she did with her life as a writer. There were 66 detective novels she penned, 14 short story collections. Uh, she wrote a play called The Mousetrap that is the world's longest running play. It opened in 1952, and it's still being performed in its original location. That's Jesus. over 27,000 performances with no revivals, just straight. Damn. Uh, right? Uh, and I hadn't even heard of that before. So Can we just talk about me. this now? This is fascinating. <laughs> right? Uh, Guinness Records has her listed as the best-selling novelist of all time, having sold approximately 2 billion copies of her work. 2 billion. Uh, the only thing that competes with that is, like, the Bible. Uh, her writing has been translated into over 103 languages. And... What I consider her most famous book, but I also don't know enough about Agatha Christie to have authority here, and then there was none, uh, has sold over 100 million copies alone, that one title. My God, so somehow this woman just has completely dominated the detective genre, and I know pretty much nothing about her. I I haven't read anything else besides uh, Murder on the Orient Express, and, and then there were none. That was it. I didn't realize I was missing out on like 70 other books. And that was written in a time where being a woman Arthur was like having two heads. <laughs> That's so incredible to me. Don, you early 1900s. And still, she still managed to find time to be the first woman to ever surf. Are you making that one up or is that real? No. 100% true. Granot <laughs> talks about that on the commentary. He is so impressed by that fact. <laughs> I'm learning so much today. This is our most educational episode ever. That's how cool Agatha Christie was. That wasn't even like a planned thing. She apparently just 
went to a beach during a trip and surfed and whoops turns out she's the first woman to ever do that oh darn here i go making history so that's just agatha christie but then if you look at hercule perot hercule perot i'm going to say that wrong about 10 times he does not fight the lions I'm only familiar with him because of, you know, like the old TV serials and stuff where you see the pictures on his front cover, you know, the DVDs at Barnes and Noble or whatever. That's it. Like, I didn't realize the character has been used in, in no particular order, 33 novels, a play, 50 plus short stories. Uh, and that was just between 1920 and when Christie died in 75. Uh, and if you go on IMDb, there's 87 television and film appearances of the character listed. And if you look at the people who have played Hercule... There's Albert Finney, Ian Holm, Alfred Molina, Orson Welles, John Malkovich, and Kenneth Branagh. And there's like 20 other folks on there. It's insane, the, the quality of people who have played this character before. And I had no idea Welles ever played him. That's incredible. <sighs> Somehow, yeah, all this gets lost. And the character has been around. I mean, <laughs> there's plenty of movies out there, TV series. People are aware of the character. But... I don't think of him that much. It's not like a Batman kind of thing where you have to see 30 different references to him every single day. Or even Sherlock Holmes, who is, you know, as far as mystery goes, probably the only one people can remember offhand. It just weirds me out that this character is that prolific and yet not on my cultural radar at all. Now, Bros is considered very niche, like for like super hardcore mystery novel fans. As if he's, you know, not kind of on the same level as Sherlock Holmes, really? Like, not, maybe not as many adaptions, but... Right. It's the same level of... I have uh, no idea how many Sherlock stories are out there, but there's got to be, like, 200, you know, movie and TV episodes with the Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yeah. If only there was a young Hercule Poirot series from the 80s. <laughs> I think we'll know Hercules really made it when they do a movie about lawn gnomes playing Hercule Poirot, but with, like, a fun, punny name. Like, Sherlock Gnome? That, for him. Cody, how dare you fucking reference that? <laughs> it's my curse, Mike. I can't let it go. So hey, that... I will always appreciate that movie for being a decade-too-late sequel to a CGI retelling of Romeo and Juliet with garden gnomes set to the music of Elton John. Man, the people that pitched that must have either had compromise on everyone in the studio or they were just the best pitchmen in the world like they could sell anything to anyone you could be on the sun and then they would still send you like one ice cube and you'd be like perfect i'd name your price this will solve all my problems i feel like it that just came about the same in the same manner as that key and peel sketch about gremlins too <laughs> well let everybody pitch in an idea important thing is the cocaine flew that day that's the real mystery i think that's it we have to get to the bottom of how sherlock gnome 2 got made <sighs> boggles the mind so that was all preamble here we can actually talk about the real film now i just had to get that off my plate because wow there is so much agatha christie around that i didn't realize i, I feel very very dumb for not going out and reading more of her books i'm gonna have to do that unfortunately after we record this episode about you know one of her materials being adapted into a film so I can offer very little on how the book and the film mesh or digress from each other. Hey, I just want to say, anytime anyone says the word whodunit, because it's a word, it's a single word, somehow, you are speaking the soul of Agatha Christie aloud. I was always impressed my spell check actually knew what that was. It's weird. Normally right? it's very good at stuff like McDonald's or store names, but no, it knows whodunit. So... Uh, I I'm impressed by how such a specific colloquialism is just universally accepted as a word. <laughs> yeah, we still battle over ain't. Uh, I think that battle's mostly won. Outside of, like, middle school, no one cares that much about ain't. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, listeners, if you now hate my grammar, <laughs> you can send your hate mail, too. I'll make up an address later. Well, the new Murder on the Orient Express is a little bit of an odd choice, I think, for us, because going by the ratings on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes, a lot of folks didn't actually like this movie that much, or at all. Uh, it has surprisingly, in my mind, low ratings. I didn't realize this till today when we were about to record, but on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 56%. Uh, on IMDb, it's got a 6.5. People were not necessarily won over by the film, which weirds me out. I really, really enjoyed the movie. I thought it was a great mystery. Uh, it sets out to do a couple of basic things, and it nails them. 
the the best of them being taking an amazing cast. I can't say enough good things about this cast and letting them just destroy all of their script pages. <laughs> to recap, we've got <laughs> Kenneth Branagh with the world's most elaborate fancy mustache of a leading man I can think of on film. There's Penelope Cruz, there's Willem Dafoe, there's Judy Dench, there's Johnny Depp, there's Josh Gad, there's Leslie Odom Jr., Michelle Pfeiffer, and Daisy Ridley. That's insane, and I'm leaving people out. Somehow this movie has that giant cast of characters, and they all get time to shine. It's not like, you know, Josh Gad gets one line and then he leaves the movie. It's amazing. And a lot of people will say, okay, well, you're, you're just paying people to kind of do dress up and have fun. But I would argue this is a little bit different. So in, instead of going full on reboot Sherlock Holmes with this, where Perot is a superhero, there's elements of that. But there's still the focus on just the character work. Most of the scenes are really just interrogations between these characters. So you get the different lies, you get the stories back and forth. It's an acting showcase. And I don't think we shouldn't look down on that. I think we should appreciate and celebrate the fact that we were able to get a mid-budget movie that allowed these actors to flex their muscles. We don't get very many of those anymore. This movie was $55 million, and that's a budget range that's not really common anymore. It's either yeah. a micro-budget film or a $200 million blockbuster. I love seeing something that was obviously well-funded, but not looking for excuses to spend $100 million. And it's a, a specific type of movie that we just don't see anymore. It seemed to die out in the late 90s, which is movie star porn. Yes. Like, I haven't really... Like this is the first movie like this I've seen since the original Ocean's Eleven. Of let's just take people that we love seeing act and be character actors and tear down the scenery, and let's just lock them in an enclosed space and have them be actor at each other. It works. That's all you need to do sometimes. Just what you said: lock a bunch of people in one location and let them act against each other. Girl. Especially when there's so many different types of actor, because then then it becomes chemistry. It's like, what happens when Willem Dafoe trades barbs with Daisy Ridley? What do Kenneth Branagh and Judy Dench have to say to each other? All these different styles of acting and all these different types of actors all turned up to 11 for a two-hour movie. Like, it's one of those things that could have either been marvelous or an absolute disaster. And it ended up being great. Yeah. And I think some people might say that they, they felt parts were over the top. Kenneth Branagh, not always one for subtle, but that's okay. We're, we're basically looking at these larger-than-life detective characters anyways. So I, it doesn't bother me when <laughs> Perot is the world's greatest detective. It's, it's kind of his thing. So if Branagh is going to play him as a larger-than-life character, perfect. It makes more sense that way. We don't have to ground it that much. And if he wants to give the man a double mustache, why not? <laughs> but we want them to be kind of ridiculous. That's why I don't ever understand the blowback of that stuff. Like, yeah, I, I, I want Batman to not be subdued. Like, I, I want this stuff to be a little bit over the top with, you know, Sherlock or Perot and, and whatnot. I mean, I don't want it to be, like, parody-esque ridiculous, which it's not. Like, Brana adds a little bit extra to Perot. Uh, not so much on the action side, but, you know, makes him more, uh, heightens the um, eccentric nature of Bro a lot. And adds a, maybe a little bit of action-y flair, but still does in a very subdued way. Uh, which is kind of hilarious, because if this was made by, like, 90s Brana, it would be, like, the complete opposite. And he'd be, like, flying around with a jetpack or something. <laughs> Sucking sexy Bro. All of his lines would be him screaming about the fudge. <laughs> <laughs> Just smearing fudge onto Kiera Knightley's face. <laughs> That's a horrible moment. I was about I to say, you somehow managed to make fudge unappealing. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, he's so full of it. You bring up something I thought was really fascinating with what uh, Branagh and screenwriter Michael, Bre Michael Green brought to Perot in this version which is they do something that really shouldn't work with Perot, which is making him more, making him more action-oriented. Not to the point of uh, like the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movies where 
there are slow-mo memory palace fight scenes, which don't, those, don't get me I wrong, say, I am fun. in love with. Oh, yeah. Those are great. I, yeah. don't want, I, I don't want every. I 100% support that. They, I it's love a powerful how, spice. We need only little bits of it. <laughs> I love how they did that, but instead of it being arbitrary or being some lame attempt at making the character more of an action hero, they used it to go into Hercule's character. Like, he's still completely Hercule Perot. He is a man of leisure. He is a man who detests to take a single step he doesn't have to. But in putting him in all of these action situations, they're telling a very clear story. That is Hercule Perot. But if justice is on the line, he will actually break a sweat. So it actually means something whenever he's chasing people around and running around on this train and getting shot at. Like, yeah. This is the absolute last thing Hercule Poirot would ever want to do, but God damn it, somebody has to do it. Like in a way that that makes him more Poirot than a lot of a lot of previous versions that really play up the more the more buffoonish, laid back aspect of the character. Yeah, and I would add too. I, I really appreciate actually the kind of economy of the action. If there were action beats every other minute. Eh, eventually you kind of can get tired out unless they're somehow improving each time and it's just immaculately well done. Action can get overwhelming. And in this movie, when a gun fires, it only happens a few times in the film, but when it does, you're going to be really into the moment. Uh, when Do I have to put a spoiler take on this? If you're watching a review for a mystery movie, you should have an idea that you're going to have spoilers. Uh, when Perot is shot on the train by the doctor, that one shot, really gets you to jump. There's not that much action to it. There's a slight chase, but that's enough to make it memorable and more stand out than, you know, something that had twice the budget and had characters punching each other for 40 minutes. Brana definitely went with a um, kind of classical structure and uh, directing style. Orient Express feels more akin to a film released in the uh, 30s, 40s, or 50s than anything released in the last 20 or 30 years. And the way the action plays out, those little moments, even if it's just a gun being pulled on, pulled out and fired, not even like a full-blown action you know, foot chase or anything, but all of those are designed in a way that would be more at home in one of those old films, where there would suddenly be these uh, uh, bursts of energy. Even the even the small action scenes that are in the movie, the uh, the train track uh, chase or the one at the beginning of the film, feel very old school in their design where they're they're small scale but they're um kind of built out up in a more bombastic way that makes them seem larger than what's actually going on like bro chasing uh gad around the the tracks isn't really that large scale or anything i mean it is whenever they pull the camera back and there's this huge vista and whatnot but it's mostly pro kind of limp chasing josh gad maybe like i don't know 50 yards, if that, very <laughs> briefly, <laughs> and then kind of tackling them. But uh, I, I always enjoy the way old action scene or, or chases are filmed in, in movies from back then because it got to the point where when action scenes got larger, uh, those little bits were more of the sinew between the larger set pieces. So they they weren't treated like they were large. When in old movies from the 40s or in Orient Express, those were the set pieces. So someone chasing a, a character down the street was the was filmed like it was the biggest, most intense deal a film has ever accomplished. And I like seeing that in Orient Express because it's ends up being um, very methodical with just a lot of you know talking scenes, long takes, um, just acting porn, and all of a sudden these uh, bombastic bursts for the film just kind of explodes on you and bro you know gives chase or there's a there's a gunfight or, or what have you the more we say orient express the more i think we need like an acronym we should just call it the moto <laughs> how about murder yeah nah, all right that's that's fine moto though it's it's fun nah, nah, nah not going anywhere reminds me of old commercials i don't like it <laughs> come on down to the moto but going to the idea of old-fashioned things, boy, howdy, the set design on that train. Good oh. lord. The effort to make that look like an authentic train from that period 
it's it's I mean, it's not unique to this film. Movies have money, they spend it, they do great set dressings. But this is impressive. You watch any of the behind-the-scenes material, and you can see all the cupboards stocked with plates that look like they could be authentic to the time period. It's it's staggering. And it makes all the difference in the world that they did film a lot of these pieces on location. Like, at the start of the film, that's amazing. You could tell that that was just green-screened in. It, it would stand out. It would probably yeah. look good, but not as good as actually filming in the spot. And the shots, a lot of the compositions are very simple, but they're so effective. Just seeing a character stand in front of these exotic locations really makes it seem like you, you're getting your money's worth. You get to feel like you've traveled across the world in a way. So I, I do appreciate the limited CGI. I mean, they have to use some on the train for sure. And I honestly think some of that sticks out a little bit more. For some oh, reason, but... they just didn't. The glass doesn't look right, but that's fine because a lot of the time the camera's inside the train, not bouncing out of it. And... Yeah, the attention to detail on the set dressing is phenomenal. The attention to the camera work, I think, was next level. There are so many very long tracking shots, just trying to cram everyone in one at a time to capture little bits of each person without them having to necessarily say their character traits. It's hard to do with that many people in that confined of a space. So I, I got to tip my hat to all the work they did to make this look as interesting and dynamic as they did. I imagine if I filmed a movie about people trapped on a train, there'd be three camera angles and that'd be it because I'd have nowhere else but the camera. Like, okay, we're facing down the trolley and now it's the reverse shot and then one stuck to the ceiling because we can probably take the roof off. Braun and me has always been kind of the king of unexpected directorial choices when it comes to camera angles and movement. Like we've seen, we saw that in fucking Thor where it's like, yeah. Deutsch angles everywhere. Um <laughs> But I'm convinced his tripod broke, and he just didn't want to take the time to fix it. <laughs> but it, it's it's brilliant. no, this is art. And and in uh, Moto, um, yes, yeah, I, he's That's doing the so stuff, many, baby. I, he's doing so many unexpected moves that really highlight either the the tone of the scene that's going on, or a particular character, or the mood of the room, which I think is very impressive and very hard to pull off. Some like some directors can't. But one one of my favorite bits was when Perot is um examining the body. Like anything involving uh Ratchet's body is always usually filmed from a top down view. And it's and I love that because it just lets the facts play out. Like you it's not important you see anything. Because it's really not. It, it doesn't highlight anything, any clues. It doesn't give anything away. And I love to see more mysteries do things like that. It's like, don't cut to any close-ups of the of the watch or, or any, anything else. That's a mystery else, staple, though. you got to have the second unit shots of like a close-up of the watch so everyone knows, <laughs> oh, the time he died was. But you're right. And here it's all long shots. They just give you all the evidence scattered around the room. And you need to use your own eyes to figure out what is important and what isn't. Yeah, that's what blew me away about that scene. Like, everything Perot finds has been there the entire shot. You just don't notice it until he does. Like, that's such brilliant visual storytelling. And I like as well that he takes kind of a traditionalist uh, approach to flashbacks. Not that they'd be confusing here, but sometimes when movies go into flashback territory, they're trying to trip you up a little bit by making the timeline hard to distinguish. Here, no, fuck it. It's black and white. You know you're in the past. There. Done. <laughs> Sometimes I appreciate when movies are upfront about those kind of things. They're not playing a game. This is vital information. We need you to understand it happened in the past. Here's the quickest way to do it. Black and white is old-timey. Boom, you're done. Uh, this movie is very proud of its own artifice, which I really appreciate. Like every now and then, it's really nice to just see a movie be unabashedly a motion picture. Yeah. And I would argue with mystery stories, they're a little bit more on on the meta end of things than a lot of other films. I mean, if you look at an action film, it kind of plays out straightforward. The most meta I would say they get on that is, hey, we know the audience wants to see explosions, so we hired a really buff guy to make explosions. Whereas with a mystery novel, or a mystery story in general, they have to double guess all the time what the audience is going to be thinking. They can't make the mystery too obvious because then people figure it out and it'll be boring. They can't make it too hard because then they'll feel frustrated that they were cheated. So they have this subtle push and pull where they have to give clues but not make them too obvious, where a person could feel like they could put it all together, maybe if they're a little smarter, or maybe feel proud that they got two or three things together. It's tough. And with mystery movies, 
hitting that balance is almost impossible, especially for a moto. It's so old. It's been made several times. The people that are fans know how it plays out. And yet, somehow, they still got people to return and watch the movie, even knowing how the mystery works, which is really impressive to me, because in my mind, people watch mystery stories for the visceral thrill of it. They want to work these pieces out, and they want to treat it like a roller coaster. And once the mystery is done, they maybe want to rewatch it once more so they can pick up all the clues that they missed the first time, or they can view character motivations from a new perspective once they know, oh, that guy's the killer. But on a remake of a classic story, you got to throw that out the window unless you go and expecting they're going to throw the ending out. That's something I thought that was very interesting that Brandon Green brought up in the commentary, which is like they did have concerns about this stuff being too fresh in people's minds, and I, they thought there was a certain danger with uh, adapting a mystery that's been played so many times, but they realized, oh yeah, everybody knows what Murder in the Orient Express is. Nobody really remembers the plot because people always forget who did it <laughs> in, in, in any mystery story. Like even Branagh says, like, oh, I, I've seen a great many beautiful, incredibly made mystery movies. I don't remember how any of them end. <laughs> the mystery is about the journey. It's never about that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think with this one, too, they had the benefit of instead of just being mystery, they do add in kind of the spectacle aspect of this being type of movie you don't see very often it's that period piece costume dress thing that's all design porn with great actors you don't get enough of those anymore so people kind of treat that as the new draw instead of the identity of the killer necessarily but when i was thinking of all this i was just imagining what if you watched the movie seven but you knew who john doe was from the start and why he was doing everything he was doing and they gave you the twist before he walked in that movie it's not a mystery anymore it just transforms into like a horror suspense story that's playing out as a mystery to the characters inside the show, which is just another way that mystery story construction is fascinating to me because they have to be aware of that too. They have to make sure that the information is doled out correctly to the audience and differs from what the characters know or else the whole thing blows up and it loses that entire edge and has to morph into a new genre. I think that's kind of the secret weapon of this film. It is a perfect rewatch movie because watching it, no knowing how everything is going to play out, you are just in awe of all watching all of the little tumblers fall into place. Like, this is such an intricately written and shot story. There's so many little things going on that you don't catch the first or even the second time. Like It was interesting re-watching it uh, last night with the commentary and just re-watching that first scene and realizing, oh... Perot, in his introduction, has already figured out that the dude who hired him is responsible. So he's kind of just fucking with them and getting some free eggs out of the deal. <laughs> like he's doing the most Perot thing possible and <laughs> using this as an opportunity to take a vacation because it's just a stolen artifact. Nobody got hurt. Like that's a genius character point that is completely lost on you the first time you watch the movie. That's, all right, this movie is so rewarding in that, that sense. There is so much subtle character work going on with everybody. Yeah, and one of my favorite stories from the commentary was Brenna talking about Willem Dafoe being so happy he got a long pause in one of his line readings that was left in the final film. <laughs> Which is true, I guess. It, yeah. A lot of shots, if you start paying attention to shots in movies, the lengths of them, you'll go insane. But it, a lot of shots are couple seconds long or they can cut around audio dialogue that way you know if an actor pauses for five seconds before delivering a line most of the time you don't want that or it's going to feel weird or directors just don't have the confidence to go for it but in this case Brano plants the camera down he lets Willem Dafoe say his lines that way we get that extremely pregnant pause and it works so well they trusted the instincts of the actor and it kills and it's one of the most memorable memorable bits of acting in the movie because you just see the calculation on Defoe's face during that pause after uh, Perot lets him know the jig is up. It's like, do, do I lie my way out of this? Do I tell the truth? You know what? 50-50. I'm going to half lie, half clean, <laughs> and maybe I can get out of this alive. And you see that again uh, later in the scene when Perot realizes, no, I'm serious. The jig is up. I know you're a cop. 
and you get the same, almost the same pause and the same look of, oh, oh you're, you really are Hercule Poirot. <laughs> I misjudge this situation. Brana, Brana, like directs and sets the scene, but I love how in this film the actors set the pace and structure based on their performance of each and every scene. I'm sorry, I just got stuck imagining Jimmy Fallon as one of the characters and how that pace would just get all fucked up. Wow, a Jimmy Fallon joke? What fucking year is this, Cody? It's 2018. He's still on the air. <laughs> Quick, Cody, uh, lip-sync believer. No. But you're very much right. It's like every character, like, you never come away feeling like any character is a minor character because the second they're in a scene with Branagh, they are the most important person in the universe. Yeah. And they are calling the shots on what's going to happen in this movie for the duration of their screen time. It's an amazing uh, feat that uh, they were able to pull off in that regard. It makes Perot feel like he actually has his back against the wall, like he's in a uh, a wolf den or something and everyone could be against him. And they are, so it's helpful. If only he'd beaten Mole to death with a cane the second he stepped on the train. <laughs> yeah, that's something that really got to me in this mo with this movie, especially once you reach the third act. It's just, what an unexpected moral odyssey this ends up being for Hercule Perot. Yeah, that's I mean, the number one thing about this movie in, in my mind. It'd been very easy for them to do like a Hercule Poirot origin story and just do his first case. There you go. That's why we're filming. It's his first one. It's important. Or just make it, oh, here's another one of Hercule's adventures. It, this is fun. You like the character, so you're seeing more of his action. But in this case, the story seems like it's worth telling because you can tell at the end of it, the man has had his entire belief system morphed and shattered. It makes it feel like, hey, there's actually a huge character arc happening here for you know, what is essentially just a pulp character. Yeah, that's something I think that's so brilliant about Hercule's introduction, where in a couple of minutes it just says, like it establishes for the audience, okay, if this were a regular Perot story, this would just be the whole thing. Now let's see what happens when everything goes off the rails. Because everything about this case is seemingly designed by God himself to upset every part of Hercule's being. Like, I really love that uh, moment halfway through the movie where a character just flat out tells him, like, you're Hercule Perot. Why don't you just sit in a booth smiling with a piece of cake and explain to everybody how you've always known who the killer was? That none of this is like you. <laughs> and like, you see that the most, like, during the chase, like the interrogation, chase, and capture of Josh Gad in the middle of the movie, where you can see Perot trying so hard to force this in, into a story that makes sense for him. Like he wants so badly for the motivation to just be greed and revenge. I chased after a guy, I caught the killer. The, the, so ends another Hercule Perot mystery, but that constantly eludes him. There's always more. There's always an imbalance that doesn't fit, an imperfection in his own theory that drives him crazy. Like it, until like by the third act, this train is just fucking hell on earth for him and him specifically. See, that's uh, that's the other great thing. At the end of the movie, it's a very kind of morose end. Hercule though has he's caught the killers. He's made his choice. Some form of justice has been thrown out there, and the the people we don't really want to see go to jail all get off scot-free. They they killed the bad guy, and now they're going to go on with their lives. And yet, we get this from Hercules' point of view, and it just seems like the saddest thing in the world, and no one's happy about getting away with murder. Well, that's what I thought was fascinating about Green's explanation for why the sequel tease at the very end about the murder on the Nile is <laughs> thrown in there because you kind of you assume like okay it's like the ending of Sherlock Holmes with Moriarty it's just they're just throwing something out there in case they get greenlit for a sequel and no that's just supposed to be a character moment that was Green and Branagh saying no 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 this isn't deconstruction like this isn't the long goodbye like Perot isn't gonna come home a broken man we throw this in here to say, no, he's still going to go on and just be the the real Hercule Perot. He's just 
learned a lesson. Yeah. This isn't a deconstruction. This is building him up to be more Perot than he was before. If anything, it's a second origin story for the character. And that is so incredible to me. How do you introduce a character, deconstruct him, and then build him back up in a two-hour movie? And, and he has this that subtle enough where people aren't going to raise their hands and be like, wait, what's happening? I don't understand what you're doing here. Everyone kind of rolls with it, and it moves at a good enough clip where you could actually ignore that character development pretty easy until the very end of the film. It's nice. It doesn't feel overbearing, but there's a lot there to dig into if you feel like it. Yeah, I appreciate movies that have the um, level of you can watch this purely as a fun roller coaster piece of escapism. You dig one level down. All right, it's actually kind of um, more more a little deep and philosophical. You dig another layer down. It's those it's those two things on the top layer. Also, it's a deconstruction of what this film means and is. And and even when it comes to rewatching, you can continue watching on each level every single time. Before we get too far away from it, I do want to go back and mention it weirds me out how many detective stories have happy endings, considering for the story to happen, normally someone has to have died. There's a lot of detective movies where it's like, well, I solved the case and the bad person went to jail. I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife. Pretty much. So this makes sense to me that in this case, the detective did his job. And is just not happy. Like, he got dragged into a murder, and now he has to know all the sort of details, and he's got to live with those. That's nice. I'm glad he's sad. <laughs> well, I think that's the most Perot thing in the world. There's no triumph in having, you know, bested the bad guy. There's, it's just, there was an imbalance. He did his best to balance it out. Well, there's the next case. He's cursed by solving the case of the film. Yeah. In the end, he gets the answer, and he realizes he would have been better off if he just never intervened. If he was never on the train, he wouldn't have had to learn about it, and the same result would have happened. I love how, in addition to being so entertaining and being a great murder mystery, this is also just one long character piece about Hercule Poirot, like one long examination of that character's philosophy and his manner of living, like – there's the amount of information you are given about Perot in a two-hour movie is incredible. Like we're like seven Spider-Man movies in, and <laughs> I don't know as much about Peter Parker as I know about Hercule Perot in this movie. It, it's very interesting to hear Green and Branagh talk about that because they are so in love with that character, and they have such specific ideas about. Uh, how their particular version of Perot sees the world. Like nothing in this movie is fluff. Like even something as simple as Perot going to his favorite restaurant at the beginning of the movie is chock full of character details. Like in that one scene, they establish, okay, Perot is really fastidious, but he's not prissy at all. Like. He's more than happy being in the dirt and the grime and going to a hole-in-the-wall restaurant as long as it's good. I remember years and years ago uh, talking to somebody who was a huge fan of the BBC series, and I asked him, like, what is it about this weird fat guy in a mustache that is so engaging to people and has been engaging for so long? And they said something that I will never forget, which is the thing that sets Perot apart from every other detective is he has absolutely no desire whatsoever to be a detective. He's just a guy who likes nice things, and he, he loves perfection. He loves artistry. He'd be more than happy staying at home and tending to his garden and eating at nice restaurants and talking to wonderful, interesting people, but – he realizes he's burdened with this tremendous talent, and if he doesn't use it, then nobody gets to go to nice restaurants and talk to nice people and tend their garden. He loves perfection so much, he can't live in a world that is imperfect outside of his field of vision. And that imagine is so if he had interesting. Stones. Mike, everything is within balance. God, now I think about it, there is a little bit of a Thanos streak in <laughs> Brennan's A little bit. The Infinity Stash. Now he snaps I just his want... fingers and everyone has perfect facial hair. Can, can Infinity, can, can uh, 
Avengers Endgame please open with Thanos on his farm, stepping in shit, and then calmly smoothing it out so there is perfect balance. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing to see a movie that has such a clear idea about who its main character is and to see the entire movie play off of that. And it's interesting when you go back and rewatch it, kind of knowing the outcome, knowing every every weird tick of every character. You you end up watching it more from I think Perot's perspective as a character, and you see him more put things together earlier on in the film than he's actually letting on. And you realize the film is more about Perot being a like a spectator to human suffering, like that everything that's actually going on is such a fucking downer and he's being forced to deconstruct some of the worst events in any of these people's lives and in anybody's life. And that's the, that's what's going through his head the entire time. And seeing a character go through that and then try to make sense of a, trying to solve the murder, the murder of a child murderer. And realize all of these people have been completely destroyed and wrecked. But then also realize they all killed this man. So they too have, have committed an unspeakable act in in the eyes of, of, of Hercule. And it ends up being kind of a, a, a crucible for Perot in so many ways. And you see this guy's philosophy... Um, completely dismantled around him and see him put through the paces where he has to kind of take on the emotions of everyone around him and the emotions of everyone around him are just grief and depression and uh, absolute solitude and everyone's just hoping for some kind of life after this event and bro for the most part knows that it's not really going to work out that way and he himself has to kind of come with the come to the conclusion that uh, there's no good that comes out of any of this <laughs> or any kind of form of grief as he himself is grieving as well so it it i i enjoy how it plays Perot almost as a a spectator to actual the events of the film he's not so much solving anything is that he's understanding he's watching an event play out that he has no control over. Yeah. And, and to that end at the very end of the film, when he leaves the gun on the table, that test that he gives Michelle Pfeiffer, okay, what are you going to do? Are you going to shoot me to get out of this? Or are you going to surrender? And the fact she turns the gun on herself, you can see how much that kind of frustrates him. <laughs> I think his character, if he had it perfectly, she would have tried to murder him with the gun. That's what he wanted. Yeah. He says, Plain as day in the beginning, a killer will not hesitate to kill again. Yeah, it's that idea. He thinks if she tries to kill me, they are bad people. And instead, she pulls the gun on herself, which has to be frustrating because now you're dealing with people that are not evil as he wants to believe. And that's that's a great finale. That's his test now, is he has to sort out the emotional aftermath of that act. He was hoping she would fail the test and just make life easy for him again, and he doesn't get that relief. So he has to change what seems like a very concrete, set-in-his-ways frame of mind. Pretty interesting that the end of the movie isn't, you know, unmasking the killer. It's a man trying to change his own personal philosophy. That's the big climax. climax. Also, uh, and this isn't connected as much, I just wanted to mention it. Uh, the last dinner tableau, as Perot is walking up to all the suspects... And on the commentary, they mentioned this was done because they're trying to get you in the frame of Hercule. He sees this as the last dinner, which is, I mean, I, I thought it was just easy money before. The first time I saw it, you, everyone makes that same connection. Oh, it's the last dinner. But hearing them describe it as it's, it's almost a religious experience for Perot makes that so much richer. Instead of just being an easy visual call in, there's a lot of meaning there. You can, you can dig into that quite a bit. That said, people should stop doing last dinner shots. <laughs> They really should, yeah. There's got to be some other famous art they can go out there and start adapting. <laughs> it worked here. I gave them a pass, but <laughs> I don't need to see a hundred other films do the exact same thing. Everybody just wants to be that one dude who raises up his finger angrily. <laughs> that is my dream, honestly. If only we had more co-hosts, we could recreate that. <laughs>
Just that, uh, that and that guy who's almost giving gun fingers, like, ugh. No, you we just have take such nice things. Everyone changes <laughs> costumes, and the three of us just switch spots, and you know, we just piece it together in Photoshop. Who gets to be Jesus? You can be Jesus, and uh, I don't know, name an apostle. Be whoever you want. You got to be like eight people. I don't know how many people are in that painting. What's a Bible? <laughs> uh, the free book they give you at a hotel. Ah, oh, my masturbating book. <laughs> I, I just realized... Like in there's... the olden days when you had to imagine your porn. <laughs> I just realized the Last Supper has 12 apostles and Jesus. That's 13. Okay, the Last next, Supper is unholy. Oh my god. No, no, is no. The red 13? strings are appearing. Oh no. Circles. <laughs> Circles just going around and around and around. I finally know a way to tell out. Anyway... I just feel like there's got to be a water boy or something in the background of that. Is it 13? I don't know. I don't know, Art. Look, Jesus was a very small operation. They were getting their own. Jesus was making sandwiches for them, for God's sake. <laughs> Anything to make or save a buck. He just sort of opened a food truck. Things would have worked out better for him. But yeah, Murder on the Orient Express. Good film. Choo, Excellent film. Choo, choose Superb. this one. Masterful. We say that? It's masterful. Masterful. I am utterly in love with this movie i this is one i know i'm going to revisit again and again and again well until someone dies on the nile and then you can twofer can we just say how fucking awesome it is that, that we're getting a franchise of hercule Perot in 2018 finally it's very nice and i will say this much when i first saw the trailer for murder on the orient express my expectations were low just imagine dragons as Hercule Hercule Perot comes out with the stupid double stash. I'm like, no, this, oh, what are they doing? And it's so nice to go in with bad expectations and then find out you're completely wrong. And they actually made a very good movie that does not feature like indie rock from 2000 over any of it. It's it's nice to be rewarded every once in a while when you go into the theater. I think we're all very very confused by the ad campaign they chose to run for Murder Yeah. I guess to be fair, how the fuck do you even promote that to a, considering they were doing it as it was a large, you know, summer movie? How the fuck do you promote it that way? They were promoting it like it was a fucking, a Marvel movie that was coming out in like July. It didn't, I thought it came out in November. It did, it, it was, it was a fall movie, but they were, what I mean is they were promoting it like it was a fucking summer movie. Uh, okay, film. sorry. I got you now. I was very confused. I'm like, there's no way they put this out in the summer. I was very lost. So this is a huge tangent, <laughs> but but I still wanted to get it out there anyways because I spent too much time thinking about it, and I want to make other people listen to me. If you look at the evolution of the mystery from where we started with Sherlock Holmes stories, Agatha Christie stories, there was the idea that a crime has been committed, and you bring in your detective to uncover all of the clues. Oftentimes, you would have it limited to one location. You know, like this story, they're trapped in a room, essentially. Strangers in a room, bouncing off of each other until the killer is found to give some urgency. All that got me thinking about the radical redefinition of a mystery that David Lynch and Mark Frost gave us with Twin Peaks. Because, wow, even now, that is not the setup anyone wants for a mystery. The idea that they had originally of, we'll start with crime, we'll bring in the detective, but instead of being one spot, we're going to have our cast of characters spread out over an entire city, and the mystery will be spread out over several days and seasons. So instead of confining everything, they exploded it. They spread it out. And even the end goal was designed to be radically different. Instead of saying, we are going to find this answer, their initial idea was they want a mystery that never ends. The way uh, Lynch describes it is he had, in Laura Palmer, uh, the goose that laid golden eggs. And they could just find new mysteries all the time, keep stringing viewers along forever as they went through all of these little mysteries and little clues. It's fascinating to me to think, hey, we don't have a lot of those kind of stories. Even now, I mean, hell, Twin Peaks was 1990. It's amazing that even now there's not a lot of other people that have bought into this theory of how to construct a mystery. Normally, if this happens, it's people who didn't write an ending to their story. Not that they didn't know it. Or not that they had one, they just didn't want to share it. They didn't have an answer, and they're just kind of cheating their way along. And I wonder if in 20, 40 years from now, we get more stories along those ends where it's something maybe a little bit like this version of Murder on the Orient Express, where you could have a classical setup, but you don't pay it off in the same way. 
and the mystery takes a backseat to maybe how characters think about what they're dealing with. It's not about the whodunit, it's about the emotions and the thinking behind the dunnit. Can we please do a murder mystery podcast called Behind the Dunnit? Behind the Dunnit. That could just be Twin Peaks. Mark <laughs> it is Frost kind of just, Twin Peaks, yeah. Just Mark Frost spits out so many great quotes about secrets and mysteries. That That's all that man should ever write about. I don't think these actually back up any of my points out of context, but I'm still going to read them because I just loved them. One, a wise man once told me that mystery is the most essential ingredient of life for the following reason. Mystery creates wonder, which leads to curiosity, which in turn provides the ground for our desire to understand who and what we truly are. That's great. That should be slapped on the cover of every mystery book. <laughs> uh, what is it? Oh, mysteries precede humankind, envelop us, and draw us forward into exploration and wonder. Secrets are the work of humankind, a covert and often insidious way to gather, withhold, or impose power. Do not confuse the pursuit of one with the manipulation of the other. Which, again... For this movie, I think that'd go great on a poster. It's a little wordy, but people get the point across to you. <laughs> it's actually my, my favorite point he touches on in The Secret History of Twin Peaks, the kind of lead-up story to Twin Peaks, The Return. He, he has this really juicy quote uh, about the difference between mysteries and secrets. And once I read that, it's just been stuck in my mind ever since. A secret's only a secret as long as you keep it. Once you tell someone, it loses all its power, for good or for ill. Like that, it's just another piece of information. But a real mystery can't be solved, not completely. It's always just out of reach, like a light around the corner. You might catch a glimpse of what it reveals, feel its warmth, but you can't know the heart of it. Not really. That's what gives it value. It can't be cracked. It's bigger than you and me, bigger than everyone we know. Those tight-ass suits can keep their secrets. They don't add up to anything. This deep in the game, I'll take mystery every time. And then no one ever wanted to make a mystery like that ever again. <laughs> <laughs> like David Lynch and Mark Frost are the only guys out there who think it's a good idea to have murder mysteries with no answers somehow even I think films have gotten fairly experimental we have a lot of genre stuff out there that's cookie cutter but with so much being produced these days you end up with a lot of stuff that tries weird new things no one wants to make movies like this no one wants to do a mystery that doesn't have a definite ending everyone wants to know who done it it's too bad because sometimes I think you can get some interesting results if you don't Especially considering, like we said earlier, nobody ever remembers the resolution of a mystery. It's the mystery that endures. Yeah. Counterpoint, who shot Mr. Burns? I think we all remember who tried to kill Mr. Burns. Yeah, it was Smithers in that deleted scene. <laughs> I to get home to watch Comedy Central. My God! <laughs> that really should have been the ending of this episode, just us devolving into a giant talk about the two-parter who killed or who shot Mr. Burns episode of The Simpsons. Don't fucking tap me. We'll be doing that next and episode. And how it swept the nation, regardless. That and who died in the um, propane explosion in King of the Hill. <laughs> Who's gonna die? Oh, man. Okay, no, we're not going into that, because that's just hours of talk of nostalgia. But, man, God, so many commercials. I've never seen could, a blitz like that for a cartoon. Could it be celebrity guest host Chuck Mangione? <laughs> that, that was, listen, I had a magazine where he gave you, each, each magazine had a different um, card in it with a different character who could have died. And if you had the winning card, you'd be entered into a contest. I had Chuck Mangione. Is that how, uh, like, Eric Clapton got on the show? Like, they just made him a recurring character? Like, you did it. You won the card. Sure, Cody. I knew it. Mystery solved. And live with it now. I'm just glad I got to say mystery solved, because that sounds like a really great way to end the show, even though it had nothing to do with the murder on the Orient Express. Or the moto, as the kids in you know the know say. Anyways, folks, that's been our talk on the Murder on the Orient Express 2017 edition. If you'd like more of this show, you can find us at Box Office Pulp. We're on Twitter. We're on... Not LinkedIn yet. Are we? Are we professional? Do we have business cards? I'd like I to get some, but some. just to tend to each other in exchanges of sadness. Eh, it'd be fun for 10 seconds before it got sad. Anyways, we're not on LinkedIn. Don't go there. But we are on Stitcher. You can find us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. Uh, am I forgetting any here? We're on Facebook, right? Uh, yeah, we're on all those places. <laughs> not MySpace. Don't bother. The mystery. Just and subscribe and rate us or whatever. Spread us around. Say hello. Solve my oh, murder. Can we? Can we start over? I want to do... It's not a mystery where to find box office pulp. <laughs> oh, God eh? damn it. Eh?
Eh, smooth. No, it's like too ice. late. Okay. Anyways, folks, that's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. And like that, he's gone. Okay, two things. One, I'm pretty sure you were thinking of Tom Petty and not Eric Clapton. Yeah, I know. Two. Once I said it, I couldn't take it back. <laughs> it's canon now. <laughs> I'm just hoping Mike was going to cut that entire portion out anyways. <laughs> Two, uh, I like how bef- long before we start talking about who shot Mr. Burns, I was going to suggest ending the episode with Dr. Hibbert saying, Well, I certainly couldn't solve this mystery. Can you? <laughs> It loses something without the finger pointing at the screen, but people can imagine it. I still think we should have all each been murdered throughout the episode, and then it's up to the podcasting audience to solve the mystery of who killed Box Office Pulp. I am always in favor of more gimmicks being put into the show. It was MB. Just think, ah. if people like responded to Twitter shit, you could make a poll like, who do you want to see die in the season of Box Office Pulp, and who do you think the killer should be? God, God, each season of Box Office Pulp has a different dead co-host. <laughs> That's how we spin this whole MB thing. He was brutally murdered by Jamie. I had my reasons. I guess I shouldn't give away who the murderer was in the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, it's fine. We, we already went over this. As long as we just put some other genre elements in here, uh, we'll just make it an action film. It'll be fine. They won't even miss the mystery. Oh, can we set a Hitchcockian mystery in prehistoric times? <laughs> <laughs> well, the first murder? Oh, it turns out at the end it was a dinosaur. <laughs> nook, nook, you're off the hook. My god, nature is the murderer. <laughs> nature is Kenneth- also a butler. Kenneth Branagh walks out in a spotted le- leopard <laughs> loincloth. Ook. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.